A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. So, you know, uh, kind of going back to those assumptions we were talking about earlier, you know, we were faced with the, uh, the, almost the accusation sometimes from people of, oh, you shouldn't read that stuff. Um, you shouldn't, you should only read stuff. And, you know, I've, I've heard this, uh, taught, um, from the pulpit very recently of you should only read stuff that the church creates. You should only read stuff that has the church's logo on it. People like yourself serve as a cautionary tale that reinforces that. Oh, see, look what happens when you read that stuff, when you read stuff that isn't written by the church. But then at the same time, it's that same stuff that that sort of helps you uh, reconcile too, right? Stuff like uh, Greg Prince, um, Terrell Givens, Kathleen Flake, you know, all those uh, wonderful authors and wonderful um you know, scholarly contributions to Mormon thought. None of those are, you can't find uh, most of those books at places like Deseret Book or, okay. So anyway, I keep interrupting your, your, your story with my, uh, my crazy uh, thoughts. Okay. Keep going. No problem. So uh, along the line, I'm like, I had heard of podcasts, but I had to know exactly what they were. So I decided I kind of figured out how to look, look stuff up. So I type in Richard Bushman. Cause I'm just wondering if, you know, has he ever been on a podcast? And bam, this guy, John DeLynn, does like this five-part, five-hour podcast interview with Richard Bushman. And I started listening to this. I'm like, I'm immediately hooked. Because it takes it – there's something intimate about speaking with the author and like kind of like you're doing with me almost, at, being able to ask questions and dig a little bit deeper with stuff. And I, I immediately – I fell in love with it. Hmm. And I fell in love with – John DeLynn and the the he has a unique ability, um, usually right to make people feel very comfortable, and he asks good questions right. He doesn't. I never get the sense that he's trapping somebody, and so then I I went backwards and started listening from the very beginning from his his story with his mission in Guatemala and stuff, and um, and so things started to come together a little bit for me in that I started to realize that there. Or people in the church that were fully aware um, of the difficult historical issues, but they still chose to stay. And I don't mean that in the fact that, look, look how smart this person is, and he's Mormon. I'm not saying that, but I'm like, they found a way to make it work. But it also came to the realization that the way they view the church is different than what you hear over the pulpit, that they had to reconstruct it for themselves and almost on their own terms, I guess. I'm not sure if that's a good way to good way to put it or not. Yeah, I, I think that's accurate. Yeah. Yeah. So it and it, and it gave me words um, to articulate what I was feeling, articulate ideas. Uh, you know, my lexicon, my Mormon lexicon expanded. Um, um, I found the writings of like Eugene England, Lowell Benyon, 
Armin Moss. I mean, just you know these beautiful minds within Mormonism that I had never heard of before. But when I when I when I but when I read like why the church is as true as the gospel, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're like, yes, yes. You know, when I read Little Benyon, yes. You know, and it's and then I and then I the Dan Witherspoon's thing and then Jared Anderson's thing, and it it things started to come together for me. And I I, I don't have a good answer why that was. Um, but during this entire time, it's not like things just came back together. I was still very much struggling. And I thought, you know, listening to Dan Witherspoon, at first I thought he was kind of too mushy, you know, just too like, I don't know. He wasn't, you know, I, I, I liked the Packer, you know, Dan Witherspoon approaches things differently. Um, but listening to Dan Witherspoon and the idea, I, I started to develop the idea if, if God could just speak to my heart that I could stay Mormon. And so I began to pray earnestly to God, but God wasn't answering me, which caused continual problems for me. And it's kind of the idea of what philosophers call a divine hiddenness. You know, why, why doesn't God make it easier for you to believe in him if he wants you to believe in him? And I was, I was, there were times I was angry with God. I would yell at him. My wife goes, you yelled at God? I wasn't there. I go, you weren't in the room, man. (laughs) Looking at, I was like, just please do something to my heart. You know, I can stay Mormon. Even with all this craziness, if you can just let me know you're there. But God wasn't answering me, right? And and I'm like, oh, no, things are Things are starting to slip for me, not just the church, really, but belief in God now is I'm, I'm worried about I'm worried about losing that as well. And uh, it, it, it wasn't good for me. I thought, well, maybe when I take communion, you know, I'll feel a real closeness to God and nothing came. Mm-hmm. I would pray and nothing would come. It was it was. Um, and that's was, uh, and that's very similar to. But obviously, magnified, uh, similar to the experience you had with the Book of Mormon before your mission. I guess you're right. I didn't think about that. Yeah, but this was, yeah, exactly. You're right. It, it is magnified. The stakes, the stakes are much higher. Yeah, I have a family now, right? I have two beautiful daughters, a wonderful, beautiful wife, and um, I'm fully. And not only that, my much of my identity is wrapped up in my Mormonism. People at work know I'm Mormon. You know, and right. people approach me because I'm Mormon, ask me questions about the Mormon church and all this is wrapped up. But I feel it's I feel it's slipping. I feel the church slipping. I feel God slipping. It's just not good for me. And then along and then somewhere along, I, I'm still taking callings and uh, along the line, somewhere along the line, um, I get asked to be the young man's secretary. And uh, the president at the time, the, he's a very good, still a super good friend of mine. His name is Mike as well. And we would go mountain biking and we would have long discussions about church stuff. And I found that kind of helpful. We go on these long mountain bike rides. I talked to him about Mountain Meadows Massacre. I remember one time distinctly, he and his wife mountain biking with my wife and I. And uh, they're asking me about polygamy and I kind of sp- spilt it all out, you know, <laughs> and try to be as non. Uh, judgmental about it as I could but just trying to explain the facts and they found it interesting you know and so anyways Mike asked me to start teaching the young men's 
um, when I was there when I wasn't on call. So I started doing that, and the boys really liked it. They they really really liked it, and uh, and so I thought, I wonder, I wonder if I can uh, teach some of these hard stuff. Not the really really not like the polyandry, but maybe like the mag- the magical worldview that early Mormons had. And the reason I thought that is because I was teaching a lesson. I can't remember when, and one of the boys tried to try to. Um, derail me and specifically remember kylan rice the one he's the guy that did the yeah so he was one of my priests that i used to teach it was specifically kylan tried to derail me to get me to talk about magic folk magic (laughs) (laughs) nice unless i get permission you know i'm I'm a guest here and so i had i had spoken to my friend mike and to my bishop both emailed him asking if i could approach some of the stuff and my bishop was okay with it um, and Mike was less comfortable, which actually surprised me. He felt that that wasn't that church wasn't the venue to talk about something like that. That maybe a fireside or something like that. And so it kind of kind of squashed me a little bit. I mean, I I won't I won't uh, I won't deny that. And so during this whole time, you also got to understand I'm wrestling with: Do I want to talk about this stuff because I like the shock value? Do I want to talk about this stuff because it's part of our history? Do I want to talk about this stuff because I think it can prevent the same problems I've had, you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm wrestling in this within myself. What are my motives in wanting to talk about it? And it's something that I can't, I, I, I still wrestle, wrestle with. So anyways, we get a new young men's president, um, Garrett, and we are about the same time. And then we shortly after that get a new, a new bishop who's younger than me now, which is for me was a little bit different. And I, and the new bishop, I, I you know I sent him an email. I sent my friend Garrett, the young man's president, an email saying, "Hey, can we approach this stuff?" You know, I thought, you know, new presidency, new bishop, see what happens. Not that the old bishop was ever against it, and uh, they didn't. No answers came from either of them, and so I continued to teach as the secretary. And uh, and uh, about somewhere around this time, I, I I found Bart Ehrman, who's a you know a. I don't th- honestly, I don't think there's a better known Bible scholar than than Bart Ehrman, and that's who uh, Jared Anderson's studying under. And oddly enough, uh, what started to happen when God started to slip, I started wondering: was Jesus Christ like really a, a historical figure, you know, or or is he made up, you know? And so I, I pick up Bart Ehrman, some of his books, and I and I realize that this guy, who's for all intents and purposes agnostic, he's not Christian anymore. He makes arguments that. You know, Jesus is a real person. Peter, Paul, and Mary are real people historically. You know, mm-hmm. and so it kind of saved Jesus for me, <laughs> which is odd. Bart do that because so many evangelicals, you know, just you know, don't like him. <laughs> but Bart Ehrman's saving Jesus for me, which is an odd thing. If I were to tell an evangelical Christian that, they'd look at me cross-eyed, you know, because they love to debate Bart Ehrman on the resurrection and things like that. So, anyways. Um, I remember specifically the young man's president asked me to teach about the apostasy because he liked the way I taught. And so I ended up doing like a two or three part lesson on the apostasy where I brought in uh, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. I read pieces of it that were just historically not true. And I said – I read it and then I would read what Bart Ehrman had to say about it and kind of to get an idea of what was really going on with the Council of Nicaea. You know, it wasn't that they were trying to decide whether or not Jesus was divine. They were trying to figure out how could he be divine and how he could be human. That, you know, and so we talked about the creed that came out of that. We talked about Constantine. And the boys just they loved it. I brought in maps, showed them, you know, where Nicaea was, where Rome was, and uh, you know, had had, you know, pictures of of Con- the, of Constantine, of of his bust and thing. And the, the boys just uh, you know, they 
They loved it. They That's really, really cool. Liked it. Wow. Yeah, they re- they really liked it. And, the, and, and all so these this adults. is in uh, this is in uh, your young men's uh, which uh, which which age group was this? This is this is all of them. This was the combined okay. lesson. So in our ward, traditionally, the first Sunday of the month is a combined all ironic priesthood. And so the young men's president had asked me to do that. And so instead of just one lesson, we did it for three. And it was fun because my old bishop was in there too because he was – I can't remember how he was involved with the young men's, but he was there. And you know, everyone they, – they really enjoyed it. You know, And I was teaching out of the manual. I was way out of the manual. But the boys loved it and they were getting something out of it, right? And so I'm, I'm still kind of <laughs> working things out. Things are feeling a little bit better for me, but not, not quite. And then um, – uh, one day, my the new bishop, who's younger than me, Bishop Wallace, invites me in to speak with him, and he says, "Hey, Mike, I want to. I feel impressed to call you as the young men's president." And um, I was like, "Holy crap!" Right? Because for a long time, I had kind of kept the church a little bit at, at a distance as as I was working things out, and I also found that by doing so, I became, I think, probably a little bit more critical of the church and of my local ward members because of that and when he when he called me asked me to do that immediately i thought of of the young man's president i had growing up his fred murray the man was amazing and he loved us he absolutely loved us and and there's so much goodness that came from him and i thought well if i can impart that love to these boys I think I can do this. And then oddly enough, he goes, part of the reason, one of the things that impressed me, Mike, and, and I didn't know he knew about this, was um, uh, a few weeks before that, I had, it was summer break, and a lot of the boys were back from BYU and stuff. And so I had invited all the young men, my priest that I had one time taught that had graduated from high school. I invited them over to my house. We had pizza, and we watched uh, New, York, New York Doll. Have you seen that movie? Yeah, yeah, I love that movie. It's a good – It's pretty awesome, it's a, yeah, right? It's a great, great documentary. Very cool. Yeah. And so these boys loved it. It blew their mind, and we talked about it. And during that time, I said, listen, guys, if the time ever comes that you're struggling with the church, that you, ha- that you have doubts, you have questions, I want you to know that you can come and speak with me. And I'm not sure if they fully grasped why I was saying that because I was still kind of in the middle of everything. And maybe one day they'll, they'll take me up on that. I don't know. But apparently that got back to my bishop, hmm. Bishop Wallace, and – so that somehow impressed him. And so, yeah, so I took it up. And then during that same conversation with him, he said, Mike, and regarding this idea of inoculation, he goes, go ahead and do it. Um, um, we'll, uh, uh, you know, just good, do it in good taste, right? Because I had sent him uh, the link to the Open Stories Foundation a survey they did on why people leave. And so he was aware of some of the issues that were, go- that were going on. And I think it was during this conversation, he goes, and Polly Andrew, what is that? And I said, uh, you know, a woman married more than one late guy. Usually she's married. He said, did Joseph really do that? I go, yeah. And you could tell he's like, his face, he doesn't do, do a good job of, of hiding his expressions, I don't think. And I've, I've told him that. You could tell he was like, he wasn't okay with that, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? But um, he was also aware, because I had sent him that, um, famous uh, quote from Elder Jensen about, you know, we haven't seen such a large apostasy since the days of Kirtland, and it's largely over these historical issues, you know. So he, he was aware of what was going on. Gotcha. So you brought that to his attention. That, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And specifically, you brought to his attention that, you know, people are leaving in a, in a large, uh, large number. We don't know how 
how many exactly, but enough to elicit that sort of remark from Marlon Jensen. And yeah. then, uh, and also you're referring to the, the study that open stories did or the survey they did of the reasons why people leave. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you mentioned a term and we discussed, we brought it up earlier of inoculation. And, um, you also mentioned, uh, uh, a few minutes ago, how you, one of the things you hope to get out of your, your time serving in the young men was to help them avoid some of the things that you had experienced. And so, um, of course, all that is tied into this idea of inoculation. So would you mind yeah. explaining that? Like, what do you, yeah. what do you mean by inoculation? Yeah. So the, the, the idea is just like a vaccine. The vaccine has either a, a live virus or, a virus that's not going to get you sick, and you 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 inject it into usually into a child or you know a missionary you know, if he's going to the <laughs> Philippines, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea is that you you develop antibodies to it. So when you're actually exposed to the real thing, it it doesn't it doesn't bother you, right? You don't get sick. But we do know that um, some people get really sick from the inoculation. Some people die, right? Right. Um, however, my view is that I have never, I have yet to hear of of a thir- someone that left the church because I have, at age thirteen they heard that Joe Smith married thirty wives. You see what I'm saying? I haven't heard right. that, but I ha- <laughs> but I have heard of the thirty year old leaving the church, divorcing his wife, and everything just goes to hell because of that. Right. I have heard that. Story. I've heard it over and over again. Right. And I, sorry, I got a little excited there, but um. So I, I have heard that story, and so I um, I don't want that to happen to any of my boys. I don't. Um, and um, so, what is the concept of inoculation as it pl- as it applies to what we're talking about with people with uh, uh, faith crisis and yeah, Mormonism so, and all that stuff? So, so the idea is, if you introduce some of these sticky historical issues at a young age. It's not an issue to cause a faith crisis when they're older because they've heard about it already, right? And the the big thing that you hear about people that leave the church over these issues is the historical issue becomes a secondary part to the sense of deception that the, that the church was purposely hiding these things from them, and then that's what really just blows them out of the church. Is that for for many people is the is the secondary the secondary thing there, right? And I and I think. As a church, we can do something to prevent it. I think the ch- church as an institution is very, very large, and it's a big ship to steer. And I don't think we see um, – we won't see the results to many things for years down because that rudder turns it and this whole ship it has to change course. I you're, think, uh, you're channeling Greg Prince there. Oh, am I? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I must have been, I must have been <laughs> quoting him. <laughs> so um, – and so I, th- I think on a local level it can be done and it can be done well, um, and I don't think we need to wait from Salt Lake to do it. Some people don't like it when I say that. <laughs> you know, they think that everything comes from top down, but you know we're not commanded. We shouldn't be commanded in all things, and some of the great, uh, great changes in the church have come at a from a local level. Uh, 
when you read um, Berger's book on the temple, for example, the change in the garment going from a long sleeve to a short sleeve was because the women in the church were complaining about the long sleeve garments. They're like, you know, we're pulling them up anyways. Why can't we just get rid of the sleeves? And guess what? They got rid of the sleeves, right? Mm-hmm. And as Greg Prince points out, the um, the idea of a singles ward started down in Southern California, and then a young Thomas Monson goes down there to see what's going on, and we have singles wards now because it started on a local level. You know, the the getting rid of that. Now we're to the three hour block. That was a local level thing. People are like, hey, we can change this, and so that so it's not foreign to Mormonism, but I don't think I don't think the general membership realizes that some of these changes have come at a local level. And the other thing people don't – I think they, they, they think about it, but they don't practice it maybe, is that revelation comes because people are asking questions, right? And the questions are never going to come to the brethren unless we're talking about them. You know, they, they don't, I, I don't know if they necessarily know what questions to ask unless they see the problem. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of my approach. And so when my bishop gave me the okay for the inoculation idea, I was like, oh, good. So I'm going to talk to my young men's leaders about it. And I said, hey, when we, you know, so there's three of us. And so every three months, one of us gives the combined lesson. I said, when I give the combined lesson, I'm not going to do it about missionary work. I'm going to pick up one of these sticky subjects. So my first one was on uh, seer stones and how, and the way the Book of Mormon was actually revealed to Joseph Smith, not through the you know what we classically think as the Urim and Thummim, and so I, I came in very, uh, very, very well prepared because I knew that this would be new for not just the kids perhaps, but also for many of the adults that were in there. And so my bishop was in there, uh, of course. Um, the staking young men's president was in there, and then the majority of our young men's leaders. There's also I think the staking young men's secretary was there, who's he happens to be married to our our, our relief society president. So I had a big quite a big an crowd. audience, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and so I came pretty prepared. I had pictures. tough crowd, <laughs> yeah, tough crowd. I had pictures of. Um, Joseph looking at the plates. I had pictures of him looking through the Urim and Thummim, you know, an artistic depiction. I had had him looking at a hat, and so the my the way I opened it is I said, "Hey, how many of you guys think that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon like this?" And I had him looking at the plates, and like most people raise their hand. What about this way with the Urim and Thummim? Some of the kids are like, "That's kind of weird." Some of the adults were okay with it. And I go, "What about this?" And I show him with his face in the hat, and I was like, "No, that's that's bat crazy, right?" I mean. <laughs> Whatever, and so, so I said, "Well, what if I told you that uh, a uh, you know a historian said this?" Now nah, I wouldn't believe. It. What if I told you the historian was uh, used to be the chair of uh, the history department at an Ivy League school? Now nah, I wouldn't believe it. Okay, what if what if I told you he was a stake patriarch and stake president? Uh, oh well, yeah, I could maybe. What if I told you Elder Russell M. Nelson said it happened this way? <laughs> like, oh, we believe it. So then I have him read the quote. <laughs> You know, right. that insight article, right? You know, see, I'm, I'm engaging them, right? I'm, I'm, I'm sucking them in. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh. So I explained to them what the seer stones were. I had, you know, uh, pictured of possibly what one of Joseph's seer stones looked like um, and, and how, what, how he initially used it, you know, for treasure digging and stuff like that. And then how he used it for the revelation of the Book of Mormon. And I kind of told maybe a, perhaps a better way to talk about the Book of Mormon translation isn't a translation, but more of a revelation because translation carries with it a lot of, of implied ideas, right? So my every, the, as far as I knew, everybody liked it. Uh, my bishop, one concern was that he wanted it to wrap it up a little bit. Uh, so he, had, he asked me to do a, a second part to it. So I, I did the, the, next, the next Sunday. I plug in my iPhone uh, and play South Park 
Yeah, the people are going to love this. South Park, German version, so you can't understand what they're saying, but it's the piece where Joseph and Whitmer go up into the house and Joseph sticks his face in the hat, right? Right. And, and the kids are like, we can't watch South Park. I'm like, just be quiet. Just watch this. We can't. And so they're watching. I go, why did I show that? And immediately the kids remember, one kid raised his hand. It's because Joseph used the seer stones in the hat for the Book of Mormon translation. I'm like, yes, you got it. And I think what it hit home is the complaint that you hear Mormons online saying that it's a problem when we get better history from South Park than we do from the manuals, right? Right. <laughs> those arguments are spot on. And I, you know, I, and I, and I hit it home. The boys loved it, though. They loved it. Um, that is so cool. I can't believe you used uh, a South Park clip. <laughs> yeah, right? You're pretty crazy. So, uh, and then I also had wonder, just primary quotes from people that said Joseph used the seer stones, the Whitmers and, and, and Emma and things like that, you know. And so I had all my T's crossed and eyes dotted and so we're 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 good right um but we're not <laughs> uh i be, started to become aware that people weren't okay with a me not teaching out of the manual and b talking about seer stones which for me isn't a problem at all uh book of abraham problem anachronisms <laughs> in the book of mormon problem polyandry problem seer stones no, you're just changing the expectation. We're just telling you how it actually happened, right? Right. And, um, and, and so things – so I start to get – I start to hear of some resistance. Um, and, you, and you start to get the argument, milk before meat, you know, but – which is – I don't even know where to start with that. And so during this time, I'm trying to figure out how to negotiate all this. So I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a little Gregory Prince and Philip Barlow. Maybe they'll talk to me. And guess what? They freaking do, right? It's crazy. <laughs> Greg Prince calls me up. Is this a good time to talk to you, Mike? Uh, yeah. And so we speak for like over an hour about stuff and how to approach things. And then Philip Barlow, yeah, Mike, why don't you call me? I'm driving. You know, I have this symposium I have to go to. Uh, can I call you while I'm driving? Yeah. I speak to him for over an hour. You know, and that, that to me spoke hugely to the Mormon intellectual community. That they were willing to condescend down to Mike Barker, Medford Fourth Ward, Young Men's President, and spend that much time with me. You, you know, it, it was – it made me feel good. That's way cool. <laughs> it made me feel really good. And I'm not saying – and I don't encourage everyone to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah, sure I'm not sure how much really uh, <laughs> they would appreciate you <laughs> revealing that – that uh, that there's a Greg Prince hotline that they can call. Yeah, exactly right, <laughs> exactly. So that kind of helped me um, uh, uh, a little bit, um, and so I had to start. There was a lot of resistance uh, here locally to what I was doing, and so I I came in and spoke to my bishop, and uh, and uh, I have a a very deep love for him. Um, and I didn't want him to have problems because of me. You know, mm-hmm. he's younger than me. He's got he's got other stuff he's got to deal with. He didn't have to deal with with my crap, right? Mm-hmm. And so I told him, you know, I'll back off with these combined ones. But I'm still going to talk to it about with my priests because now that we've lowered the age to 18, we have a huge responsibility to get these boys ready, right, for a mission. And they and. Uh, and uh, so I, I told him I'd still talk about some of this stuff. So 
I end up uh, Youngman's lesson. I, I I get a Margaret Young and Darius Gray's DVD on on blacks and the priesthood. I tell my bishop I want to talk about. It. He goes, let me look at the DVD first. He looks at it. He gives me the okay. And so I think over two or three Sundays we watch the DVD with the priest quorum. We would stop it with about five or ten minutes to end. Ask them see if they had questions about it. Discuss it. And to my surprise, uh, at the time I only had one priest. To my surprise. He had he had no idea that blacks at one time could not enter the temple and could not have priesthood, and wow. I was surprised. So I sent that message to Margaret Young. She's like, "I'm not surprised at all, Mike." <laughs> I was like, "Oh." So at the end of of that three week this three week part, I brought in um, um, Gregory Prince's uh, book, uh, "Rise of Modern Mormonism." I brought in um, um, Edward Kimball's unedited version of Lengthen. Lengthen Your Stride that came out a couple years ago. It's a pretty cool book. It has in blue, it has highlighted the stuff that they edited out of the Desert Book version. Hmm. Brought that in, and then I brought in Lester Bush's article, you know, from 1973 or four, was it? And so we sat down and I tried to explain to him the battles that went on and how this revelation came and things like that. And he loved it. He absolutely loved it. You know, he had no idea. He had no problem with the idea that a prophet is fallible, that Brigham Young's racist views, which most white people had at the time, right, that it influenced policy in the church. He had no pro- he had no problem with that. Yeah, it was it just wasn't an issue. And then I at the end, you know, I said we have to um, understand that usually we speak of the church as being the one and only true church, but in that same scripture it says it's the living church, and that means the church can change. And my young man, my one priest at the time, he told me how much that spoke to him, that the church is a living church and that it can change. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a problem for him at all. He's just like, oh, this may, you know, yeah, that makes sense. And it was good. That's cool. For him. And I wonder how different an experience he would have had if he was, you know, sent to Detroit, Michigan. <laughs> and, you know, for the first time while he's trying to teach somebody gets that bomb dropped on him. You know what I mean? Because that's that's essentially what we're talking about. And you're right, you know, with the lowering of the mission mission age, you know, it's it's become even more important. And I, I, we have to wake up to the fact that as long as we are still sending young men and young women to develop countries that have access to the internet, they are going to be teaching people that are going to look up that stuff on the internet. And we are really kidding ourselves if we think that somehow you know these 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 kids aren't going to get exposed to that stuff especially now more than ever i mean when you and i served our missions you know i got i got handed bible tracts and stuff like that but you know certainly it's and i and i heard of the you know the film the god makers and and stuff like that but you know the it's 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 a it's a reality that we have to we have to face you know, I think that's why that whole concept of inoculation is important. And I, you know, I really admire what you're doing, Mike, because you're, you're sort of, uh, you know, braving a new path there. That's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's very much an experiment that you're, uh, that you're trying. Um, so what else? Oh, and then, uh, so yeah, so I start getting this resistance. So I'm not quite sure what to do. You know, I tell my bishop what I'm – I say, hey, bishop, let's do – maybe I should just back off with stuff. And so I decided to send Philip Barlow another message to see if, what his impression is. He, he, he emails me back says, you know, Mike, if, pe- if people 
if people view what you're doing as damaging, then you're not doing any good. And perhaps you have made the, the right decision to back off. And then he said, and give your bishop a box of chocolates, you know, for, <laughs> for, for all. Yeah. Your, your bishop sounds like, man, the guy rocks the, guy he, rocks the house. He's, he's, he's awesome. awesome. I like yeah, your bishop. He's totally awesome. And I, I guess my, you know, you've expressed it, but I, I, I think within the church, we need to, we need to raise the level of discourse. And one of the things that our culture tends to do is it tends to dumb things down. And, um, and we're impatient with having to study. Uh, we're impatient with having to do critical thinking, you know. And it's just like, give it to me fast, you know. Keep it stupid, you know. Or, or, or keep it simple, stupid, you know, the kiss, the kiss principle, you know. And, uh, and what we need to do is we don't need to water down the substance of the discourse. We need to boil our people up. And if they're going to be educated in all kinds of fields, um, why shouldn't they be educated about their faith? You know what I'm saying? Right. And so I, I think the church has the task, the educational task, the pedagogical task to raise up the level of discourse of our faith to the general level of discourse of any other intelligent subject that, that the culture is going to be prepared to talk about. And I would say it's the obligation of any thinking Christian, any thinking Mormon, to be able to, to articulate our faith at a level of discourse that could challenge the basic cultural assumptions. And that's, uh, I, you know, I, I feel very, very strongly about that. Um, so, but yeah, I'm getting, I'm definitely getting uh, some resistance. Some people have openly spoke, spoken with me about the concern, the concern that I'm, it's not out of the manual, the concern um, that I'm going to leave, you know, we're, we're going to lose a boy, which we may, we may, but I, I, I doubt it when I know how many we are losing, you know, because of it, because uh, of these issues. And so, yeah, that's where we are you know, with, with my priest quorum. And then I just finished up a lesson two weeks ago about modesty with the boys, kind of t- taking a different approach to it, you know, as far as that. And the boys really liked that as well. Once again, not out of the manual, but I'm sure I'm going to get in trouble at some point here for all this. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's – I think you're you're fighting a good fight there, Mike, because uh, I'd much rather they hear it from, from someone like you than uh, – than perhaps a hostile source out there. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And nowadays, my big concerns are inoculation, epistemology, you know, how we, the idea of how we come to know something is true, r- women's roles in the church. And then I've also picked up on this idea of natural theology. And then City Creek is just a, phew, that just makes <laughs> <laughs> you know, Good old City Creek. Good old City Creek. But the idea with, with inoculation, you know, when people, st- people start to s- slip out of the church, all of a sudden, the apologetic arguments just seem completely stupid to them, right? right. And then we're we're on the defensive again, where we 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 could be on the offensive. And for some reason, we're still arguing with evangelical Christians. When people leave the church, they don't become evangelical Christians. They become agnostic and they become atheists. They might hang around at a Unitarian church for a while, right? Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it's it's almost so predictable what happens. And I'm like, we can prevent, we can totally prevent this. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of, you know, how I, uh, my whole view of the whole thing. That's how you <laughs> roll. That, that's how I roll. And that, that modesty lesson, it was, it was cool. My bishop called me, I think last Tuesday, he's like, Mike, I really like that lesson. And it, it completely changed my view of modesty and how I'm going to teach it. And I was like, that's awesome. Super cool. awesome. Right. So cool. Well, um, 
Mike, I like the discussion we've had about how to sort of work inoculation into places like the Sunday meeting block and into our church callings. Uh, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about how we can do that sort of in our families and with our kids. I know you've got two daughters. Have you, uh, do you have any experiences that you'd like to share in terms of uh, how you navigate that with your kids? Oh yeah, for sure. I think you bring up uh, something really important because one of the main arguments that's been um, brought up either on my blog or at church uh, to counter the idea of inoculation is that this stuff should be done should be done at home and not necessarily at church, which I completely agree with 100 uh, percent. Elder um, Packer gave a talk some time ago about putting on the armor of God, and he 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 used this metaphor that the uh, the armor of God should be placed and made at home, but just shined. And buffeted or buffeted, buffed at church, and I completely agree with them. The problem is that there's good statistics to show that the majority of Americans just don't read, and Mormons aren't any different from that. I have a a really good friend that I used to mountain bike with, and uh, we got we got talking about the Mount Madison ma- massacre one time, and um, and I said, hey, do you want to read about it? And he goes, sure. So I I gave him um, Wayne Brooks, you know great book on it. And I asked him about a month later, how, hey, how did that come along? He goes, well, you know, I read part of the, um, the introduction and then the, the church came out with that, that two page insight article about the mountain metals massacre. So I just read that. <laughs> nice. Give me the readers, yeah. give me the reader's digest version. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. So it was, it was, I was frustrated. I was disappointed, disappointed for sure. <laughs> right. And so I guess the point is that, um, yes, it should be done at home. But many people don't do the reading that's necessary to do it. Right. And so at um, in my home, we do a couple odd things. <laughs> First of all, Mormonism is spoken about quite openly, which is not – that's not weird. But the weird thing is in, uh, when we read, we read book the Book of Mormon together as a family, all my family uses the standard version. But um, Benchmark Books came out with a great parallel Book of Mormon that has all the um, – Editions that were published during Joseph Smith's life. So you have the 1830, oh, was it 34 and 42 maybe? I can't remember off the top of my head. Anyways, I read the 1830 version. And as we go through, um, my wife and my daughter that reads really well and the other ones, you know, she's not able to pay quite enough attention yet. They'll hear the differences. And when they hear the differences, they stop me and I take a pen and I underline the change that's occurred. And so the idea is that my daughters will hear and come into understanding that the Book of Mormon has changed throughout time. The most of, most of these changes are completely insignificant. Um, just changing uh, for, instead of um, which, changing it to who instead. Which oddly enough, um, last this year I was reading another uh, history on the King James version, and during Joseph Smith's time was when a distinction was actually made, being made in the English language between which and who, using when to use each word. And so it comes out in the 1830 version of the Book of Mormon. So anyway, it's just a little weird oh, thing. That's really cool. Yeah, it's just completely from another source. Non-LDS had nothing to do with Mormonism at all. And then, um, and then there are some bigger ones, you know, with the whole King Benjamin Mosiah change and that's something Royal Skousen gets into. Uh, the, the other thing uh, – 
in particular that came up uh, earlier this year is my wife was gone and she got a little upset with me at the time because she thought I was the one that prompted the whole thing, but I explained to her it wasn't me. Um, Milena, my 10-year-old, goes, hey, Dad, does anyone do polygamy anymore? I go, yeah. And I said, uh, there's this guy named Warren Jeffs. And I explained to her who Warren, Warren Jeffs was and you know he married – teenage girls you can see where this is going <laughs> and uh she goes oh i go what do you think about that she goes well that's not good i go all right and i'm like okay let's see what happens here what if i told you joseph smith did that would that bother you oh yeah why and she talks about it i go well joseph smith did in fact marry teenage girls what do you think and she stops. She pauses, and I'm thinking, oh man, am I going to have to reconstruct things here for her? You know? She goes, well, Dad, funny thing you you say. He asked that. Uh, and at the time, she was reading um, the uh, Lemony Snickets in the, uh, help me out here, in a series of unfortunate events. And she goes, in there, Lemony Snickets talks about how people are like a chef's salad. There's the good parts, like the tomatoes. And there's the bad parts like the onions. I guess Joseph Smith was a chef's salad. He had good parts and he had bad parts to him. <laughs> That's so cool. That's awesome. <laughs> right? Yeah. What, what, was, what, how did you feel about that? What did you think about that, her response? Well, of course. Well, you know how you feel about your kids and all of a sudden you think they're like the brainiacs of the world. Um, right. it, made me feel, it made me feel good because I was – I wasn't sure how I was going to pull that reconstruct Joseph for her at age ten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that could have been uh, that was kind of risky, but um, yeah, it was totally risky. Yeah, oh, it was totally risky. Um, but I guess my there's a couple things that we learned that even at age ten, people were able to nuance belief and and understand and understand that you know we're not. I mean, we are human, and it goes back to kind of this philosophical idea. Uh, for me, anyways, that you know, we often speak. One of the characteristics of God is that He's omnipotent, that He's all all powerful. And out of that, you know, you get people that go, "Can, can God pick up a rock that's heavier than than He is?" You know, that, right. that that question. But what they fail to understand is is that historically, uh, omnipotence deals with the idea that God is only able to do that which is logically possible. So He's not able to make a square circle. He cannot make a married bachelor. And he cannot force people to freely choose. He, he, and so when God is working with human beings, because we have agency that we talk about all the time in church, that means it has to come through some type of a human filter. And because that human filter is fallible, things are going to come out differently sometimes. And we have to be open to that and understand that mistakes might be made. Uh, as they come through that filter, and but there's also the ability to um, to make uh, course corrections as as we have it in the church, and that's that idea uh, for me um, takes care of a lot of problems. As soon as I actually came to the idea, actually believed that instead of just said it, but actually believed that prophets are fallible, that God will only can only do that which is logically possible. It takes it for me. It took care of. Um, Took care of a lot of a lot of problems, and I think it can for a lot of people in the church. As far as you know, the idea of, of inoculation. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. I think uh, I sort of have this imagery in my head of God sort of pouring truth 
down on us, you know, and whether he's pouring it into the mind of someone like a prophet, I imagine that when it comes to something as profound and beyond human comprehension as what I imagine eternal truths are, I imagine as he's pouring that into someone like a prophet, a lot spills over in the process. And I think then when that same prophet has to then take the this knowledge that he or she has received and then dispense it to other people through human language and through the lens of their own personal biases, um, <laughs> I think just a lot, a lot gets lost in translation and uh, mistakes are made. You know, it's never, it's never going to be perfect. I, I completely agree with you. My my brother has a series of posts that he calls Revelation Fair and Biased. You know, kind of makes that fun of Fox News. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so he talks about in a great length um, that idea. He has a different post for different things. And one of the really good ones that he did, they're all really good, but one of the ones that I, I particularly like was the one he did on the blacks and the priesthood. And the reason I liked it was because of the comments that came. Um, and one of, one, one of them was a lady by the name of Camille who um, is – she's Caucasian, but apparently she must have a, a, a dark she, – she has a dark-skinned child. I'm not sure if it's adopted or her husband is black or what. But she told my brother, thanks. Now I know what to tell my daughter when she asks me this question when she's older. You know, so Paul was able to present something that's completely plausible but with that understanding that, that these revelations come through a um, – through a human filter, and I think, unfortunately, for for some people, um, as they kind of exit the church, things like that are problematic, and it has to do with this whole idea of epistemology. You know how we come to know what's true, and there's such a a heavy emphasis on relying on the the Holy Ghost to reveal all truth. To you know very much the Moroni ten uh, way of approaching things, and. Um, the problem, the problem with that is not the Holy Ghost in and of itself, but like you and I are talking about right now, is our interpretation of those promptings. It's so, it, it's it's not that God messes it up, you know. It's we can mess it up as we uh, come to to interpret those things, and then so you'll have people that are completely either agnostic or atheist in regards to God, and so they, they'll say things such as like the only way uh, to know what's true is through rationale, but we have to understand that even our rationale is imperfect. There's been times in, when we're in surgery, we have this bone that's just a completely a mess, and we think rationally it makes sense to do this and this to it, but guess what? It doesn't, it doesn't work out, and so our rationale can even be flawed at times, and so within Mormonism, we have this um, this great idea of working it out in your mind and then asking asking God, but understanding that it is very much coming through a um, through a human filter. Um, and right. For, that's it's it's held cleared things up. It might and it might it might muddy things a little bit too. And uh, and that I that I understand and appreciate. Right. Yeah. Me too. I'm in the same boat. So uh, so um, I I really appreciate you sharing all these uh, different experiences you've had trying to uh, make this work in your in your local ward and in your family. So, but we we sort of took a tangent from your um, your faith transition story. So where where because this all sounds like it's been uh, very recent. Um, so where where are you at now? Like where has your journey taken you, and where are you at right now? Yeah. So what happened was God still wasn't talking to me. He still and then last a year ago, December, I was I was I was praying. 
I'm like, oh, seriously. And um, we have a, a steak choir that does a uh, the steak steak does a, a Christmas choir presentation that is crazy good for being, you know, Medford, Oregon. You know, we're we're Medford, Oregon. You know, no one's heard of us. Um, the the man that leads the choir used to do the Oakland Temple Pageant. Hmm. Um, so he handpicks everybody, and it, it's it's amazing. I have friends that are non LDS now that ask me, "Hey, are you guys doing that again?" And they ask me, "They when is it?" Because they want to come. And last year I was sitting in a pew, and suddenly um, the song called Hosanna, which is from a musical thing called I think it's called The Lamb of God. I can't remember the composer. I'm listening to it, and all of a sudden, completely unexpectedly, this incredible sense of warmth and peace came to me. God had reached down finally and touched my heart, and I knew he was there. He had finally answered my prayers. Why the heck he took so long? I don't know, man. <laughs> but he, he had answered it finally, and I was like, okay, he's answered it. I can... I can stay Mormon. I can stay Mormon. With this answer, I can stay Mormon. Not that everything's clean and fixed, but I can stay stay Mormon. And then a couple other things. You know, I'm, I'm working things out. Um, one thing that helped tremendously was my calling as a young men's president because it allowed me to engage directly with these good people in my ward. And I, and I viewed them differently now than I did before. And, and I saw their – I could see their good hearts and, and how wonderful uh, people they are. And the beautiful things that Mormonism can do to people, you know, just absolutely, absolutely amazing. Let me give you one example. So last week, my wife's in the Relief Society present, uh, and our Relief Society president, Wendy, uh, comes to drop some things off because they're doing a humanity, humanitarian thing. And Wendy um, goes, Mike, do you have a second I can talk to you? I go, yeah. And she goes, you know, and she started talking to me about my blog, which, you know, she's I was concerned about some of this stuff and voicing some other concerns and she goes you know I've I've been one of those people that been going and talking to Bishop about you and concerned about what you're teaching the boys and about your blog and she goes um, I just I had recently I wrote a personal essay for our, for our blog that we run and she goes um, I read your essay Mike and I wanted to apologize to you for what I had th- what I had thought about you and what you were doing and I thought who does that? There's no reason I would have known that Wendy was harboring any ill will, if you will, towards me. I, no, what, no, know what I mean? She, right. she didn't have to. She didn't have to do that. That's but she cool. came and she came and opened my her heart. I mean, what an incredibly courageous thing to do. And she she apologized to me. And of course, I'm going to accept that apology. I mean, what a what a tremendous thing to do. And I hugged her. I kissed her on the head. We chatted for a while. She came in the house. I'm thinking afterwards, I'm like, yeah, what are the neighbors across the street? <laughs> you know, it would look kind of weird, right? <laughs> but, it, but anyways, we had a good talk. And um, I spoke to her today because I told her I was going to you, you and I were going to be chatting. And I asked her permission to, to share that story. And she said she'd, she'd be okay. But, and, I, and, I, and I asked her, you know, why would you do that? Why would you apologize? And she's, and I, and I, she's completely sincere. She says, Michael, I did that because I love you. And she, for me... Um, exemplifies what Mormonism can do to people, how it can change their hearts, and how it can make them good, really good people. And she is a marvelous person, a courageous person, and 
And I, uh, I can't speak highly enough of her for that one thing she did. And then she told me today, because I didn't react negatively to her, that that meant a lot to her. And that she would, anytime she heard someone's voicing concern about me, she would go to bat for me. You know what I mean? That's just that that that's what Mormonism, and that's what I found by accepting this calling. I was able to interact with beautiful, amazing people like that, and that helped me. Yeah, that's cool. Because yeah, you you bring up a good point. It's uh, it's easy to become cynical. Um, it's easy to become cynical towards uh, the church, towards your ward members. You know, sometimes we forget that the Mormons are awesome. You know, Mormons are Mormons are great people, and um. And so that's uh, – thank you for sharing that, Mike. That's, yeah, that's it was, awesome. It was quite remarkable for me. Um, the other thing that helped me is I, I ran into – are you familiar with natural theology? Uh, why don't you, why, why don't you uh, tell me a little bit about it? Yeah. yeah, this thing helped me a lot too. So natural theology is the idea that there's philosophical arguments um, for the existence of God. And it was something completely foreign to me. So it was kind of like – you know, I had the question start question does Jesus Christ, Jesus Nazareth, was he a historical figure? It came from Bart Ehrman. He was, you know, of all places. Natural theology, um, you know, some of these arguments started in very early Christianity. Some of them were actually picked up by Muslims later on and developed more and then given back to Christianity. But there's these wonderful arguments um, that are really good arguments for God's existence apart from Scripture. Apart from like the Holy Ghost witnessing to you, and they were quite amazing to me that these arguments worked because I heard them work in debates, you know, against people like Christopher Hitchens and and Dawkins, and I, you know, I heard these and I'm like, wow, these. And so I decided to start reading a lot about that, and um, and so that was one of the one of those arguments called the the argument for God's existence based on objective moral values. And I presented that argument to my, to my young men and they, they loved it as well. Um, and it was, so that helped me a lot, um, too, it, oddly enough, you know, coming from the, a lot of the people that develop these ideas still are, are mostly evangelical Christians, but it, um, yeah, it was, it, that helped, helped a lot too. It really did. Cool. So you made uh and I, I should have uh, done a better job in the beginning um, introducing your blog, but you and your brother, uh, Paul and your other brother, John, is that right? Yeah. John, um, you guys, uh, run a blog called rational faiths. It's, it's sort of a new find for me. I don't know how long it's been, how long you guys have had the blog for, but, um, I've really enjoyed, uh, uh, reading all of your, both, uh, yours and Paul's, uh, posts. So tell us a little bit about, um, because the reason I bring that up now is, um, I know that you're, your exposure to the idea of natural theology is uh, is a big component in in what led you to to start the blog. So tell us tell us that story. Yeah, so I, you know I was there's a couple things that were going on. So I start natural theology. I start talking to Paul about it and some of these amazing arguments. And then also I decided to pick up um, uh, uh, Hardy's book. Uh, uh, oh man, here uh, what's his first name? Uh, Grant Hardy. Grant Hardy, thanks. I decided to pick up his Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon and then his um, his Reader's Guide to the Book of Mormon. And I'm reading the, the stuff. I'm like, wow, I've never approached the Book of Mormon this way. This is – and I, I, and I and I'm not using hyperbole. I fell in love with the Book of Mormon completely engrossed in it. 
and it was beautiful. And to me, the answer I sought when I was 19 years old has come to me now at age 39. And it's, an, it's, a, it's The Book of Mormon to me is amazing in its complexity. And it's something that I would never have picked up. I've been able to, unless I, unless Grant Hardy, you know, I, I owe a lot to him. And so I was talking to Paul about that. And so in the background, what's going on is I have some of my young men saying, hey, Brother Barker, you should start a blog. I'm like, no, nah, forget it. And then my brother John's like, hey, Mike, you should start a blog. No, nah, forget about it. So I just continue to have these conversations with Paul and John about natural theology, about the insights I'm learning uh, through uh, Hardy's, uh, Hardy's books. And then one day John goes, hey, Mike, I started a blog. You better write something. So I'm like, oh. <laughs> All right, so I just say, okay, I'll, I'll do a, I'll just start doing the Book of Mormon lessons. So what I would do is I'll go through the Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition, go through, come up with my own notes, type them up, and then uh, the great thing about his uh, Reader's Guide is in the back there's an index with all the scriptures, uh, verses, and where he cites them, where he talks about it in the book. So then I'll go through his Reader's Edition and find if, if if his insights there fit well into the lesson, and then I then I quote them and put them in there. And so I started doing that. And it helped me a lot. I liked it. And then I decided – and then my wife did a post on City Creek, which got an interesting response. Uh, she, we were upset with the whole Amber Combie Fitch thing that was going to – it looked like it was going to go in there. We're like, why, why would our church you know, do that? Re, you know? And it got, got a good – Good, a good reaction there. And then I decided to do a post on, uh, on uh, the moral argument for God's existence. And uh, nobody was coming. See, the initial idea was that maybe I can engage friends because people would come up to me after church sometimes and talk to me. And I thought, you know, maybe we can, we can take a little bit deeper here. But no, really no people were interacting. So then my brother's like, hey, Mike, how about I go to these closed Facebook groups like MO 2.0, Mormon Stories Podcast Community and things like that. I'm like, no, I don't want to interact with those people. I want to interact with my friends. But nobody was coming. So if I had told Paul, okay. And I, seriously, I think every ex-Mormon atheist in the world found that. <laughs> that blog post. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but and, how, and how was that received? <laughs> the argument held up, man. It held up. It really did. Because um, I had heard it used – I heard it debated. So I knew what the uh, counterarguments would be and I knew what the counter to the counterarguments would be. And it was one – it was – and it was – no one was angry or mean. Um, but the arguments were good, and they held up, they held up really, really well, and I enjoyed it. But still, the blog was still lacking a little bit. But we were getting more people. I mean, we were getting 100, 200 views a month, which isn't a lot at all. I have a, a my I have a good friend in my ward, Gerilyn Poole. She's the um, web host for Feminist Mormon Housewives. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a weird confluence of people down here in Medford Fourth Ward. Yeah, how about but, that? Uh, <laughs> but anyways, I asked her one time, you know, how many hits does you know FMH get? She's all about fifteen thousand a month. I'm like, oh yeah, we're we're very little, <laughs> <laughs> right? And and then um, in the conversations with my bishop, um, he was concerned about people leaving the church, about people about uh, people not feeling that they could work out their faith within the church and leaving. So he gave this amazing talk at a ward conference, just beautiful. But seriously, just um, it was. It was beautiful. So I go, hey, Bishop, what do you think about letting me post that on our blog? He's like, okay, just you know, clean it up a little bit. And so I, he, liked, he liked the way it looked, so we posted it. And holy crap, the month before his post, we had like 300. The next month, we had 2,000. Hmm. 
like it wasn't it wasn't because everyone was looking at his which a lot of people did i mean he's had a lot of views but it, people started looking at the other posts as well right mm-hmm. and then it went up to 3000 and then like this month i think we're up to like 6000 views right very cool and i and i and i blame my bishop for it for that one <laughs> that absolutely amazing amazing talk everyone should go and read it it's i think it's still on the main page there i think um cool yeah we'll we'll be uh we'll be posting a lot of links um including to the to the blog and we'll do one for uh for your bishop's post yeah so it's quite find it. it's quite amazing there were some other really good posts um my my friend Kylan Rice, the one that interviewed Margaret Young, like I said, he's a English major at BYU, and he has this an amazing gift a gift of writing. And he wrote this beautiful, beautiful essay about wrestling with God. It's just uh the 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 man can write like nobody. It's just so good, you know. And it's just you know. So we've we've and and we've we've been blessed to have some really good, really good essays. And then recently, I wrote a um. A personal essay, kind of, uh, and along the same vein of Sunstone Magazine, you know, uh, Pillars of My Faith and Why I Stay, but we call it Why I'm Mormon or something like that. And I wrote a, per- a personal essay, and uh, people really, really appreciated it. I mean, I was, I was kind of thrown back a little bit at the response of it, and the the reason it prompted, I, I was prompted to write it was, um, I don't want to get the sense that like all of a sudden everything's like candy and roses and everything's beautiful right now with my relationship to the church it 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 comes and goes it ebbs and flows but i've never been at that point where i was with the polyandry i've never been there but every so often my lamanite blood will boil a little bit (laughs) my wife reminds me just to chill out you know good thing that she's there but i was um we needed someone else to bless the the sacrament right so my 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 priest comes and uh, his name is Stuart. Stuart goes, "Hey, Mike or Brother Barker, will you come help me bless the sacrament?" I was like, "Yeah." So I I haven't blessed it in years, a long time. So um, something quite remarkable happened uh, as we're breaking the bread. All of a sudden, I had this sense that I was of being back two thousand years ago when Christ was doing this for the first time for his apostles. It was quite remarkable, and I can't quite explain it. It's, I can't quite explain the feeling I had. And then I gave it to my deacons, and I kind of pictured them as the 12 apostles. And then the same thing with the water. Hmm. And then the cloth that covers the, the, uh, the table, you know, I immediately had the sense of, like, Mary and the other women, they're preparing Christ's body. And it was just this, once again, completely unexpected, amazingly beautiful experience for me. And I I sat there and I happened to have uh, the, you know, Terrell and Fiona Givens book and I cracked it open. I read some passages there and I was like, this is good. This is so good for my soul right now. uh, And then I had the impression I got to write. My, my my story about my struggles and why I'm still Mormon. And um, it was good for me and apparently good for other people too. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, it's been wonderful. It's, it's been good. It's allowed Paul to work some of his faith issues out. It's allowed us to kind of poke at Mormonism a little bit and get people to think about things. And it's been, overall, it's been good. It's been well-received. 
I, th- I think. And it's, yeah, I like it. Very cool. I like it a lot. Very yeah. cool. Well, um, God, we've been going for a long time. I just realized that it's getting late. Oh. <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, this has been, this has been really wonderful, Mike. Um, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart, it's been wonderful to, to get to know you and to hear your story. And I think, uh, I think this is, uh, this is a very valuable contribution to sort of the, the library of, uh, of content we want to provide people. Um, and so, so really appreciate you coming on, um, on our podcast today. And, um, we will, uh, of course be putting, uh, um, links on the blog, like I said earlier, to uh, some of the books that that Mike has talked about, and uh, of course, link to his blog. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say um, before we before we uh, end today, Mike? Yeah, there a couple points. One is for me, it was interesting that what allowed me to reconstruct my faith in some things was outside of Mormonism, that it was an agnostic Bible scholar, that it was um, these philosophical arguments that have really taken root within evangelical Christianity. And and um, and the um, and Christopher Stendhal, who I, one time was the um, dean of the, the School of Divinity at Harvard and also um, the bishop of the Lutheran Church, I think in Sweden, he he developed this 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 three things for under for religious understanding he talked about um um leaving room for holy envy meaning you see things in other traditions that you wish you could adapt in your own and i very much have holy envy for other religious traditions for oddly enough for evangelicals for their for their 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 approach uh to philosophy um for um and also for for the Catholic Church, their idea of commun you know, they use the word communion. And I, I love that word because communion community, you know, and not only are we when we when we when we take the bread and water, not only are we promising things with God, but we're promising each things to each other, you know, that we'll mourn with those that mourn. And for me I wish we could adapt adapt that language. Hmm. And the other thing is it's been a blessing for me to be the young man's president. Um just uh this week, Monday, one of the young men I used to teach went on his mission, and he had his mom send me a message saying he wanted me to be there when he was set apart. That was awesome for him to ask me to do that. And then I have I have this great friend, Kylan Rice. You know, I was uh, he sent me a message. He said he's looking forward to coming home during Christmas break, and he wants to come over and, and chat with me. You know, I've been able to develop these wonderful relationships that um that mean the world to me and um I, I think it means something to them as as well uh and then then the other other thing that that i've really enjoyed is our, our uh, on our blog we started a um a book review and the first book review we did was joanna brooks book of mormon girl i asked my sister-in-law my wife's oldest sister who left the church about 20 years ago to do it um I thought she'd offer an interesting perspective on it, and she did. And I hope I'm not breaking any confidence with what Tammy told me, but she told me it was very cathartic for her that, you know, it had been such a long time since she's been able to approach, you know, her Mormon roots and being able to read that book and write about uh, about the faith that she had as a, as a child was, was, was good for her. And that made me feel really good. <laughs> made me feel really good. Awesome.
cool. Well, Mike, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, you bet, man. Uh, thanks for joining us on A Thoughtful Faith. And um, I guess that's it. Come the fount of every blessing to my heart to sing the grace. Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. Daily I'm constrained